Alright guys, today we're going to break down UFC 295 from MSG Madison Square Garden with the light heavyweight title bout and the interim heavyweight championship bout topping the card. First, in the main event, you have the light heavyweight title bout between the returning former light heavyweight champion who never lost his belt but vacated it due to injury in Yiri Denisa Prohaska going up against the man who is the number one contender for the light heavyweight championship, the former UFC middleweight champion, and the two-weight division glory kickboxing champion in Alex Poatan Pereira. So you have Pereira versus Prohaska in the main event, and then the co-main event, you have the interim title bout. It was originally set to be Stipe Miocic and John Jones for the heavyweight title. Jones got injured and tore his pec, so that's not happening. So now you have the uh, interim heavyweight championship bout between Sergey Pavlovich and Tom Aspinall. So let's get into the card, and we're going to kick it off on the prelims in the, let's see, we'll kick it off in the featherweight division. I'll keep this one pretty short and sweet. You have Dennis Bazooka coming in 8-3 and three versus Jamal Emmers 19-7. and seven. A lot of people believe that Jamal Emmers won his last fight against Jack Jenkins, by being able to outstrike him, out wrestle him, and just, you know, overall do more work. But I think the more damaging and powerful strikes came from Jack Jenkins. Jenkins was the underdog in that fight. I did pick Jack Jenkins to win that one. And when it looks when I look at this fight, I think that this is a clear bet for Jamal Emmers. You know, I think he's the longer, taller, rangier fighter. And if you look at Dennis Bazooka's first fight in the UFC, he fought Sean Woodson, who I would say is more technical than Jamal Emmers, but I think Jamal Emmers is more well-rounded overall as a mixed martial artist. Uh, Woodson is a very long, tall, rangy fighter, and he uses his jab, his one-twos, and his boxing to kind of keep the opponent at distance and keep them away, use those teep kicks up the middle. And I think he has a similar position here with Jamal Emmers, but the thing is Emmers can also use his wrestling. He can take down the opponent. He can grapple. I would say that the power probably comes more from the side of Bazooka. He's going to be looking to close that distance, slip the jab, come over the top with the overhand right, come back with the left hook, whip with wide overhands, hooks, rip the inside with uppercuts and try to work the body. That is something that I think Bazooka can do in this fight, but it's going to be hard to close the distance against Emmers. I just think Emmers is going to be the fighter who's going to have that reach advantage, he's going to be able to use that reach advantage to his, you know, use that reach advantage to his success in this fight, use it to his advantage, I guess you could say, and keep Bazooka on the end of it. If he closes distance, I think we're going to see Jamal Emmers change levels, use takedowns and try to, you know, use the grappling like we saw him use in the Usain Askabov fight, where Askabov came in 25-1. and one. Um... I'm going to go with Jamal Emmers here to get a decision. I just think he's the more well-rounded fighter. I think he's the more technical fighter, and I think he can dictate the range in this fight, and whoever's going to dictate the range is going to win. If it stays on the outside and it's at kicking range and Emmers can kind of skate around the outside of the octagon, you know, change his stances, use his kicking game, you know, use the grappling when Bazooka tries to close the distance, then I do think... That's going to be where Emmers does the best work. If Bazooka can close that range, get into the pocket, get into the over-unders, uh, get into that boxing range or clinch range and maybe dirty box with Emmers, that's where Bazooka is going to have the advantage because he's going to be able to land his powerful boxing combinations. But I don't think he's going to be able to do that. So give me Jamal Emmers via decision. Up next, a flyweight bout between Joshua Van and Kevin Borjas. Uh, listen, this is one of my favorite fights on the card. 
It's a very, very solid fight. And when I look at breaking this fight down from a stylistic perspective, Joshua Van's a very well-rounded fighter. He only started wrestling, I think they said about six months ago, and he was able to stop the takedowns pretty easily from Zolga Zumagulov. Now, the one thing you do have to take into consideration when looking at the Zumagulov fight, and Joshua Van was a fighter I did back as an underdog in that spot, um, but you have to look at who Zumagulov is. He fights to close fights with everybody. He has gotten a, a submission in the UFC. I think he's gotten a couple finishes, but a lot of the times he either gets dominated or he fights to a very close decision, and it usually goes to a split decision, and he comes out on the wrong end of it. Um, I think that Joshua Van was a clear winner in the fight against Zumagulov, and the one thing I really liked about Van was, even though he doesn't have a ton of experience in the wrestling, he's able to stop takedowns. He uses that wizard, uses the underhook, and turns the opponent back. Um, that overhook with the wizard on the one side is very solid. Even if he gets taken down, he can work his way back up to the feet. He'll use the cage to wall walk his way back up and turn his back to the center. Um, looking at this fight, though, I think it's not going to be a lot of wrestling. I think we're going to get a majority of a striking matchup here. And I would say Joshua Van is better in the close range. He's got very good slip counters, very good head movement. He moves his head left and right, slips, rolls very well, and he comes back on counters. Um, very, very solid counter boxer, and he can rip very good shots to the body and on the inside, and he does the best work when he's able to pressure the opponent back and close off that distance and really get in his face. Whenever Joshua Van's able to close off that range and distance and get in the face and get in the grill, of the opponent, that's where he does his best work. You know, shots over the top, uppercuts, ripping shots to the body. Um, he's got good head kicks to punctuate combinations as well. And his striking is very fast. He just kind of, he's more of a methodical fighter, I guess, than I would say Kevin Borjas. Kevin Borjas is a guy who has good takedown defense and he does get taken down at certain points, but he can work his way back up to the feet. And it's almost as if his takedown defense gets better the longer the fight goes on. The, the more he's able to get into the fight, the more he's able to kind of flow with the fight and he can defend takedowns the longer the fight goes. If you look at his contender series fight, he got taken down early, got controlled. He was able to work his way back up. And the longer the fight went, he made the opponent kind of gas out. And the minute he got on the feet, he was just peppering him with boxing combinations. Borjas is going to be the fighter with the reach advantage here. He's going to be using that long one-two. He's got a very good jab into the lead left hook, considering that he is an orthodox fighter. He can rip that left shot to the body extremely well. Um, one-two, one-one-two, one-two rip, two rip, jab hook. I mean, he mixes up his combinations very well, and he's a very, very technical boxer, and he's very fast. I would say that Borjas probably is going to have the speed advantage when he puts his combinations together, but I would say Van is going to have more of a calm demeanor to the point where if he can slip on the inside, he'll probably have the better counter, stri counter strikes throughout the fight. I think Van is better defensively. He's more defensively responsible as even when he closes the distance, he does move his head off the center line. He does slip and roll like we talked about earlier. Um, Borjas is kind of there to be hit. He's very solid. He's got very good boxing, very crisp technical combinations, but he is there to get hit at certain points and he keeps his chin in the air when he throws his combinations. The one-twos, the lead hooks, um, the jab lead hook, the rip to the body. He keeps his chin in the air and on the center line, which is going to be a little bit of a uh, 
like a head on a silver platter here for Joshua Van, who moves his head better and times his counters and finds openings to crack a fighter who might not be as defensively responsible. But I do think this fight is very close, and I don't think that Joshua Van should be a minus 200, minus 220 favorite. And at a plus 180, plus 190, it makes me want to take a shot on Kevin Borjas here because he can, you know, keep that cardio up for 15 minutes. And you look at that contender series fight, he was able to keep that cardio up when he was getting taken down, you know, controlled, put into bad positions on his back. And he was able to work his way back up to the feet and still keep the cardio over the 15 minute bout. I do think that Borjas is actually going to have the better cardio over the 15 minutes. I just think Joshua Van is probably going to have the better counters and he's going to be a little bit better defensively. But overall, I think I'm going to side with the underdog here in Kevin Borjas. I, I don't like the price tag on Joshua Van. I think he's a great fighter. I picked him to beat Zuma Gulov, but the long rangey striking of Kevin Borjas, the one twos down the middle, the jab into the lead hook, the straight punches and the lead hook paired with the speed of his combinations. I think that this is a very, very even fight. I mean, we have eight and one with seven finishes and one decision versus nine and one. Um, I think eight wins by KO and one by decision. Um, I think that this is a very, very tricky fight. And I think I'm going to side with the underdog in Borjas. I just like the speed on his boxing combinations. I like the fact that he keeps his cardio up and can defend takedowns the longer the fight goes. Even though I don't necessarily think we're going to get a ton of takedowns. He isn't the best defensively. And I would worry about a guy with the, the inside fighting ability of a Joshua Van that he could crack Borjas on the chin and get fin and uh, knock him out. But I am going to go with Borjas here. I just think that he, like I already said, you know, the points I already touched on. Give me Kevin Borjas second round knockout in this fight as the underdog. All right, up next in the bantamweight division, you have John Castaneda taking on Mr. Perfect Kyung Yo Kong. Um, listen, you know, I think that the wrestling advantage is going to come from Castaneda. But the jiu-jitsu and grappling advantage would probably come from the side of Mr. Perfect in Kyung Ho Kong. I think that John Castaneda is going to be looking to use that left head kick, use that left straight, the left straight into the left head kick, use the jab, circle out to the outside. Um, the only thing I don't like is his cardio. I think that if he is the hammer, he does very well. But when he's the nail, he can't come back from it. You know, he can break. Watch that Daniel Santos fight. Landed a big straight left multiple times. A big left head kick that almost crumbled Santos. I mean, picked him apart in that first round. But the minute Santos pushed him back, the minute Santos, you know, didn't wilt to that pressure, he broke him. And it, it, it gives me a similar vibe uh, with a little bit less dominance to the thing we saw this weekend with Gabriel Bonfim. Very, very good nail or very, very good hammer. Couldn't handle being the nail. The minute that first round ended, going into the early, you know, 60 seconds of round two, I knew that Gabriel Bonfim was going to lose. And I was mad because I had money on Bonfim. I had him in a lot of parlays. I thought he was going to be able to sub him early. But, you know, I underestimated Nicholas Dalby and I could tell that he was breaking. John Castaneda is a guy who is very solid, very technical, uses decent footwork, good straight left hand, good left head kick, left body kick, uses uh, skirting around the outside very well, but he's not going to win a technical mixed martial arts fight, especially in the striking, against a guy like Kyung Ho Kang, who does everything perfect. I mean, his name is Mr. Perfect for a reason. The only thing is he does get cracked and he does get hit, but we saw in his last fight against uh, Christian Quinones, he got hit with a big overhand, got rocked, and was able to stay in the fight 
exploit the defensive irresponsibility and then drop Christian Quinones, jump on him and get a submission. He's got good grappling, very good submission ability, good control from the top. If he gets into the mount on John Castaneda, he's able to you know, grapevine the legs, control the opponent, flatten them out and look to land ground and pound and allow themselves or allow the opponent, I guess I should say, to open themselves up for a submission. I think Castaneda is probably the more powerful striker, but I think if this fight stays on the outside and it's a point fighting style of matchup, I don't see Kyung Ho Kong losing that style of fight against a guy in Castaneda who we see slows down later in the fight, who yes, can use his wrestling, but I think even if he uses his wrestling, he's at a jujitsu disadvantage against Kong, but we've seen Kong get taken down multiple times before. So I think the best weapons for Castaneda is to use that straight left, use the left body kick, um, mix up the left cross into the left head kick behind it in case Kong slips off the center line. Because even though we've seen him, you know, go through the fire, he can get hurt and he can get wobbled in fights like we saw in that Christian Quinones fight. But I think Kong's going to be able to keep it at his range, keep it at his distance, pick him apart. And I think the cardio is really going to be the key here in this fight. So I'm going to take Mr. Perfect Kyung Ho Kong to defeat John Castaneda. I'm going to go with a third round submission. I think he breaks him down the stretch because Castaneda is not going to be able to be the hammer as much as he would like to. And I'm going to go with the third round rear naked choke for Mr. Perfect Kong Ho Kong. All right. To finish off the early prelims, you have Jared Gordon taking on Mark O'Madson. Jared Gordon and Mark O'Madson. I'm going to keep this quick. Mark O'Madson is not a good striker. He has decent power. He can put a decent amount of shots together, but if he can't get his wrestling going, he's going to lose the fight. He's probably going to get a couple takedowns on Mark or on Jared Gordon. I would expect him to get a few takedowns, you know, but I think Gordon's going to be able to work his way back up to the feet. Gordon has decent jujitsu as well. He might be able to threaten with some submissions off of his back, but when this fight's on the feet, man, it's all Jared Gordon, his jab, his left hook. The left hook is crisp. It's clean. He was cleaning up Bobby Green in that fight early before he got hit with the headbutt and then you know, which led up to the TKO for Bobby Green, even though it was a no contest. And um, Jared Gordon has very solid boxing, very good movement, le uh, left and right, in and out. A lot of people believe he got robbed in the fight against Patty Pimblett. I wasn't mad because I had Pimblett in a lot of parlays, and he was pretty much the one that would have either broke the camel's back or built it up a little bit more. And luckily for me, we were on the right side of a close decision. Um, I don't think it was a robbery, but I definitely could see why you would pick Jared Gordon to win that fight against Pimblett. Um, he landed a lot of big shots, landed a lot of solid counters in the defensive irresponsibility of Patty Pimblett. Gordon is very solid with his defense. He keeps a very high guard. He slips, rolls, finds a way to land those overhands, finds a way to land that left hook, and just finds ways finds ways to exploit the opponent's defensive irresponsibility, which is something we've talked about already on this card. Marco Madsen's going to have the wrestling advantage if he can close that distance, if he can take down Jared Gordon. Um, I think even if he takes him down, he's not going to be able to submit him, and I don't think he can control Jared Gordon on the floor for 15 minutes with a heavy wrestling approach. I think early it might be heavy takedowns, control, wrestling pressure, you know, clinch control in the over-under up against the cage. But when it gets into that second, when it gets into that third round, that's where I think the cardio advantage for Jared Gordon is going to kick in and it's going to make it easier for him to stop those takedowns. It's going to be easier for him to work that jab, work the left hook behind it, use the one-twos, rip the uppercuts, and really get his boxing combinations flowing later on in this fight. 
I think early it's Marco Madsen in the second and the third round. It's all Jared Gordon. I know he's coming off that, you know, TKO or the the no contest with the concussion and he was going to come into his last fight, you know, right away. And he got pulled from that probably due to some concussion syndromes or uh, lingering symptoms. But I think that this is a different fighter. I think Jared Gordon's going to be healed. He's going to be ready. I wouldn't necessarily tell you to go throw all your money on Jared Gordon. But I think at just under a 2-1 to favorite, Jared Gordon is going to be the side here in terms of betting. It's early. It's Marco Madsen later on. Second, third round. Later in the fight, it's all Jared Gordon. I'm going to go with a third round TKO for Jared Gordon. I could definitely see him getting a decision. I could see it making the decision. But... I think he slows down Marco Madsen, exploits his defensive irresponsibility, starts ripping that hook to the body, coming back up top, the left hook to the head, the right hand, the one one twos, the one two rip to the body, and just starts to melt Marco Madsen later on in the fight. So give me Jared Gordon via third round TKO. I like him in this spot. All right, now we move back on to the prelims, or I guess the prelims, not the early prelims, and we start off in the lightweight division in a banger of a matchup between Nazim the Black Wolf Sadyakov taking on Vyacheslav Borshchev. Um, listen, I think this is a phenomenal fight. This is just like the Kevin Borjas and Joshua Van fight. It's going to be a barn burner. It's going to be a banger. But I think the more well-rounded fighter in this matchup is on the side of Nazim Sadyakov. Vyacheslav Borshchev is a phenomenal boxer. He's a very solid striker. He pairs up his boxing and his kickboxing combinations very well. We saw in his last fight against uh, Mahashate, he was able to really kind of get into himself and, and kind of become one with his overall ability. He was flowing very well with his defense. He was slipping. He was rolling. He was moving. He was punctuating his combinations with kicks. He was throwing good inside low kicks, punctuating those uh, lead-off kick combinations with the boxing behind it. And uh, Vyacheslav Borshchev is a phenomenal boxer. He has a very solid left hook. He uses that left hook extremely well. Jab, lead hook, rip left hook to the body. Two, rip the left hook to the body. He's got a good right hand. Um, he goes with overhand rights as well. He can go with that 3-2 down the middle, which is what he used to knock out Mahashate. But the one thing we've seen from Vyacheslav Borshchev is that his takedown defense is suspect. And this is not a kickboxing uh, This is not a kickboxing bout. This is a mixed martial arts fight. And I do think that the more well-rounded fighter is Nazim Sadyakov. Now, if you go and watch the Evan Elder fight, Evan Elder was able to kind of outgrapple Nazim Sadyakov, you know, control him on the floor. You go and you watch the Terrence McKenney fight where we picked Nazim Sadyakov to win via submission. He was able to get those takedowns. He was able to take his back, almost lock up a rear naked choke. We're not going to get a grappling heavy approach from Slava Claus in Vyacheslav Borshchev. He's going to be looking to close that distance, move on the outside, move in and out, find his counters, use that jab, use the left hook, punctuate it with the right hand, rip the right hand to the left hook to the body, use the head movement, kind of slip and roll, use that lateral movement, box you in and just trying to beat you up on the inside with his boxing combinations and break you. But the one thing to, to negate that and the one thing to kind of put a stop to that is the heavy counter wrestling, the wrestling approach, the grappling, pushing Borshchev up against the cage, over-unders, double-unders, looking to use inside and outside trips, transition to the double legs. A heavy grappling approach mixed in with the striking is also going 
going to make the striking more competitive on the side of Sadiakov. Because if the opponent's expecting you to wrestle and take them down and you're successful with it early, it's going to make them more hesitant on the feet, which is going to open up your striking as well. And Sadiakov's a great striker. Good straight punches, beautiful hooks as well, good uppercuts, um, finds a way to land good counters. Decent kicking ability, trains with Matt the Steamroller, Favola, Eljamain Sterling, and the fighters out there out of Strong Island. And he's a more well-rounded fighter, in my opinion. And when I'm going to break this down, yes, Borshev could crack Sadiakov on the chin and knock him out. He could drop him with a body shot. He's going to be the more technical and more well-rounded boxer. But the more well-rounded fighter is Sadiakov. And I have to pick the more well-rounded fighter in this matchup. And I'm going to go with the Black Wolf. I'm going to go with Nazim Sadiakov to get this done via submission. I think he goes back-to-back -back with submission wins. I think he's competent enough to hang on the feet with a fighter like Vyacheslav Borshev. We saw that he has knockout power on the contender series with that beautiful, I believe it was a, a right hook to the body and a right hook up top to the head. Boom, boom. He rips it. He moves his head. He's able to kind of slip and then fade off to that rear side to avoid counters. And yes, if he gets into a pure boxing match with uh, Slava Claus, he's going to lose that fight. I mean, he can be competitive, but overall, if it's straight boxing, then Borshchev's going to win that one. Um, but in this one, I just think he's going to use what he needs to use in order to be successful and use what we've seen Borshev have trouble with in the past, which is a wrestling-heavy approach, grappling, pushing him up against the cage, using the takedowns, controlling from the top position, and he has a solid jiu-jitsu and grappling-based game on top of that, and he is dangerous on the mat. Mike Davis was more of a heavy wrestler using the counter-wrestling and the takedowns, but didn't have that submission threat as much as we probably would have liked to see. So Sadyakov has the wrestling, has the takedowns, but also has a submission threat, which is going to make it harder for Vyacheslav Borshchev to work his way back up to the feet because he doesn't want to expose his back, get his back taken and get rear naked choked, expose your neck and get caught in a guillotine on the way up. I think this is a more dangerous fight for Vyacheslav Borshchev than the Mike Davis fight was. Um, but I think Mike Davis is a better kickboxer than Sadiakov, but Sadiakov's very well-rounded on the feet, a very solid boxer, good movement, good range control and distance, but I think the path of least resistance is the takedowns and the wrestling, and that's what I'm going to go with. So give me Nazim, the Black Wolf, Sadiakov to get the job done via a second round rear naked choke submission. I just think he exploits the wrestling, exploits the grappling, and you know, do, do uh, does what he needs to do. So Nazim Sadiakov, second round rear naked choke. Up next, we're going to skip Mateus Rombeski or Mateus Rebecki and Roosevelt Roberts. I just didn't have time to um, study any tape on that fight, but I'll take Rebecki. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if Roosevelt wins because he is a tall, long, rangy fighter, has really solid boxing, good power, and an overall very solid uh, stand-up game to go along with everything. But I'll take Rebecki via submission in this one, but I wouldn't be surprised if Roosevelt Roberts wins that fight. Up next in the strawweight division, you have Tabitha Ricci taking on Lupita Godinez. I'm going to be honest, man. This is a very, very good matchup. It's very competitive. And uh, Lupi Godinez is a solid fighter. But if you really look at her overall career, uh, she got a submission in the second round against Elise Reed, who's a 7-4 and four fighter. She got a decision over Emily Ducote, which I would probably say is one of her best wins in her career. Decision win over Cynthia Calvillo. She has a decision loss to Angela Hill, decision win over Ariane Carnalosi, who has a solid record at 14-3. and three. Going back to 2021, if it'll load for me. 
not loading whatever here. Let's see. I'll just go on here since it doesn't want to load. Um, oh, that's it. That's it for the UFC. Okay, so that was everything. But honestly, let me let me talk about how I see this fight going. Tabitha Ricci is going to have the higher output and volume on the feet. She's not the most powerful striker, but she has decent power. She's decently technical, and I think that she can kind of outpoint Lupita Godinez on the feet. The one thing that people are going to look at when they're breaking down this fight is to say, well, Tabitha Ricci can use her wrestling, use her jiu-jitsu, and try to submit Lupi Godinez. Yes, she can, but Lupi Godinez is not an easy fighter to take down. She has very, very good takedown defense. She stuffs takedowns very well. She can get taken down, and I think if anybody can chain wrestle and find a way to get Godinez on their back, it is going to be Tabitha Ricci. But Lupi Godinez is going to have the power advantage. She's going to be the much stronger fighter in this matchup. But I think that she isn't as technical in the striking exchanges as Tabitha Ricci. She's probably a little bit better defensively. She keeps her high guard, keeps the fingertips on the eyebrows, moves her head, you know, tries to counter. She's a very heavy counter striker. And when you have high volume, the counter striking is going to be, you know, a very solid approach in beating a fighter like that because if you're able to land heavy, solid counters, you're going to slow down the volume, which makes it a more competitive fight on the feet. I think that Lupi Godinez, like I said, more powerful striker. She has a good left hook that she uses. She has a good overhand right. It's a lot of overhands, hooks, shots to the body. It's big, powerful punches for Lupi Godinez. She has a big, powerful straight right hand. She pairs the straight, loops it into the overhand, and she's very powerful. And that's really the biggest difference I see here in this fight. But Tabitha Ricci is very technical. Uh, she puts her strikes together very well. I wouldn't say that she's you know, a brawler. She puts her shots together. She uses a lot of movement. She uses her kicks. And she has that grappling advantage here against Lupi Godinez. Lupi Godinez does well against fighters that she can bully, walk down, and beat up. I think that due to the wrestling, due to the jiu-jitsu, and due to the submission threat of Tabitha Ricci, she's not going to be able to walk down and bully a fighter in Ricci. She's going to have some hard, you know, she's going to have a hard time really shutting down the game of Tabitha Ricci. He, because of the volume and because of the jiu-jitsu and the wrestling that she possesses. I really like Tabitha Ricci in this spot. I'm not going to lie. I think Lupi, like I said, has heavier power. Yes, she could hurt Tabitha Ricci on the feet. We've seen Ricci get finished before in her UFC career, but that was against Manon Fioro, who just kind of dominated Rose Namajunas in her last outing, the former champion. So I don't think that's a terrible look, even though she did get finished. Lupi, if she lands on the chin of Tabitha Ricci consistently, can hurt her, can get her out of there. But the jiu-jitsu, the wrestling, the scrambling ability of Tabitha Ricci, um, the overall volume, the, the mixing up of the combinations, punctuating with the kicks, I think the volume striking and the grappling threat of Tabitha Ricci is really what's going to carry her to a win here. I don't see a finish. In this fight, if a finish does materialize, I say it's either Loopy by TKO or Ricci by submission. But I'm going to go with Tabitha Ricci to get the job done here via decision. I just think she has more output. She lands better shots on the feet. She puts more combinations together. And I think she can mix up the combinations with her grappling and mix up the grappling and striking approach pretty seamlessly as long as she can avoid the heavy power from Godinez because I would say that Ricci is the more technical striker, but the more powerful fighter is Godinez. So give me Tabitha Ricci, Tabitha Baby Shark Ricci to, de uh, to defeat Lupi Godinez via 29-28 unanimous decision.
Alright, and up next you've got a battle to close out the prelims in the flyweight division. You have Steve Ursig, I believe his nickname is Astro Boy, taking on Alessandro Costa. This is a tough one, man. I know a lot of people are coming into this fight real heavy on Ursig, and it's kind of funny to me because these same people who are so heavy on Ursig in this fight are were against him in his UFC debut against David Dvorak, saying he doesn't have enough experience, he's not as well-rounded, Dvorak's going to beat him. And Dvorak came in there, and it was a close fight, but Ursig dropped him. He dropped him with a head kick. He hurt him with a right hand. And, you know, I think all those people are taking that last fight and just running to the window for this one. And Alessandro Costa, he's 1-1 one one in his UFC career. Won his last fight via TKO over Jimmy Flick. Hurt him with low kicks. Hurt him with that left hook to the body, the overhand right, the left hook to the body, the right calf kick. And he's very, very powerful and very solid on the feet. Um, I believe he might be... No, he's 1-1 one one in the UFC. But, um, excuse me, guys, but here's the deal. I think Ursig on the outside wins this fight all day. If he can keep it on the outside, use his jab, use his teeth kicks, use his head kicks, you know, long-range punches, straight punches, one-twos down the middle, um, knees up the middle when Costa tries to close the distance, good low kicks. I think he can definitely win, and that's really going to be the, the path of least resistance for Ursig to get the job done here. Keep it at range, keep it at distance. He's a very good grappler as well, but I think Alessandro Costa has the jiu-jitsu and the wrestling, or not the wrestling, but the jiu-jitsu to negate a lot of the success of Ursig on the floor. I know he got taken down by Amir Albazi, I know he got controlled on the top position, was getting grounded and pounded, and yeah, Ursig probably can take down Costa, and if he does get the takedown, work from inside his guard and look to set up submissions, but Costa's not that easy to take down, and Albazi didn't really get takedowns, he dropped him and hurt him on the feet, and then jumped in his guard, and then started working from the top position. It wasn't takedowns, because the takedowns that Albazi shot, he didn't get Costa was able to defend it because he saw the takedowns coming. I think Costa is definitely live here as an underdog in this spot. Um, he's going to walk forward, look to land those calf kicks, look to land that left hook to the body, the overhand right, the left hook to the body, the left hook up top, the jab. He's a very, um, he's kind of a shoot the box fighter, but a little bit more rigid and a little bit more wild. Um, keeping his hands high, big looping punches, overhand left, overhand right, right hook to the body, left hook to the body, big uppercuts. Um, yeah, and he can get dropped and he can get hurt. I think out of his three losses, two of them are TKOs. So he has been finished before, Elbazi being one of the guys who finished him with a big uppercut to ground and pound, and he dropped him with a jab previous to that, but it was really getting hurt with the right hand and then coming back with the jab behind it, throwing 2-1 instead of 1-2. Um, I think that this fight is kind of a coin flip, and at these, these type of odds, considering Ursig was like a plus 300 underdog in his last one. It makes me want to play the underdog in Costa here because I think he is well-rounded enough. I think he's dangerous enough. And I think he has the opportunity to make this fight very competitive and potentially steal a decision. And he has the power to hurt a guy like Ursig on the feet. I mean, 13 and 3, 10 and 1. Um, but the UFC experience goes to Alessandro Costa because, yeah, he lost to Amir Albazi, but Albazi's coming off a win over Kaikar France and is probably one fight away from a title shot. So is that really a bad look coming into this one? I don't really think it is. Um, I'm going to pick Alessandro Costa here as the underdog to get the win. I'm going to go Alessandro Costa via, uh, I'll go decision, but I could see a TKO as well. 
Um, I'm going to take Costa. I think he's more well-rounded than people give this guy credit for. I think people are riding high on Ursig on the, in going into this fight. And he is a very talented fighter. Very well-rounded. Came in on short notice. Came in on his debut. All those things are true. He's a very, very well-rounded and technical fighter. But I think they're riding a little bit high off of a fighter who they weren't willing to pick in his last fight against David Dvorak. So I'm going to go Alessandro Costa via decision. And um, it's not a fight I love betting on, but if I was going to throw money on it, I would take either Ursig inside the distance or the Costa money line at like plus 130, plus 140. So give me Alessandro Costa via decision over Steve Ursig. Now we're going to move to the main card. And we're going to start it off in the featherweight division between Diego Lopez and Pat Sabatini. Now, I'm going to be straight up with you guys. This is a fight that I was 100% confident in Diego Lopez going into it. And then after watching a lot of the tape, I'm not as confident as I was before. Diego Lopez is a solid fighter. You saw his last fight. He was able to get that triangle armbar against Gavin Tucker early in the first round. That was a fight I backed Gavin Tucker in. I picked Diego Lopez to defeat Movsar Evloev uh, via submission. I bet him by submission. I think at like plus 900 in that fight because he was already a 6-1, to 7-1 underdog. Excuse me. And um, I think that he definitely is the more dangerous fighter in this fight. He's going to have... The heavier power on the feet against a guy in Sabatini who we've seen get cracked, get wobbled, and who we see has durability concerns and durability issues. He got dropped by Jamal Emmers early in their fight and then went in a heel hook and a toe hold battle, and the heel hook wins every time. He was able to get that job done early after getting hurt. He got knocked out with a front kick to ground and pound from Damon Jackson. Um, then he comes in against Lucas Almeida in a spot where I backed Almeida as the underdog there, thinking that he had competent enough jujitsu and wrestling to stop the takedowns and grappling and was able to just piece up Pat Sabatini on the feet. And what did Sabatini do? There wasn't even any striking going on. He took him down, controlled him, backside trip, inside and outside trips, misdirection, controlling from the top, using that little treetop with the one knee with the foot planted on the floor to pass the guard, constantly just suffocating Lucas Almeida, looking for submissions, looking for ground and pound, getting to the full mount, looking to take the back and eventually getting that arm triangle in the second round and really dominating Lucas Almeida from start to finish. Went for a takedown right away and just it was all Pat Sabatini from then on out. And going into this fight, I think Sabatini is going to have the wrestling advantage in this one. And going up against the guy in Diego Lopez, who is a fighter who has good jiu-jitsu off of his back, threatened with an armbar, threatened with a triangle, threatened with a knee bar against Movsar Vloyev, hurt Ivloyev on the feet, got that beautiful triangle armbar or flying triangle armbar against Gavin Tucker as Tucker tried to wrestle. He's a very solid fighter. He has good overhand, a good overhand right, a good uppercut. He'll pair up the uppercut and then throw the right hand behind it, kind of like Sean O'Malley, where you throw that uppercut, feint it, and then come back with the same side straight right down the middle. Feint, boom, come back. Good left hook. He mixes up his combinations well. Only thing is he doesn't really use his jab. It's a lot of big, heavy power shots, and he's just looking to clean your clock. I think if Lopez used the jab a little bit more, fainted the jab, and paired it up with the rear calf kick, I think he would be a much, much more dangerous fighter um, in terms of his overall striking and game. Just a jab and a good right calf kick would really do him wonders. And setting up that calf kick behind the jab and the feint of the jab to throw the calf kick, I think that would be a big, big weapon in the game of Diego Lopez, who's a very dangerous fighter, who's the more dangerous fighter in this fight than Pat Sabatini, but who doesn't have as many weapons, I believe. Sabatini's a decent striker. He has decent boxing 
decent kicking. And if this fight stays on the feet, I think Diego Lopez knocks out uh, Pat Sabatini. I just think he's too fast, too too quick, and too slick for a guy like Sabatini. But the problem is, is he going to be able to stop those takedowns? Is he going to be able to work his way back up to his feet if he threatens with submissions and gives up the takedowns in favor of being able to work off of his back for triangles, arm bars, sweeps, guillotines? Like You don't want to give Pat Sabatini too much time in top control because he's not going to be an easy guy to get off of you. And that's the one thing I'm worried about after I watch tape. I think Lopez is the fighter who has the finishing upside. I think he's the more dangerous fighter. I think he's the more well-rounded fighter. I think he's the more talented fighter, but I just don't want him giving up a lot of top control time to a fighter in Sabatini who can hold you down for an entire round if you can't work your way back up to the feet. And Lopez had a very hard time working his way back up to the feet against Movsar Evloev. And Evloev was landing big hammer fists, big body shots, big hooks when he was inside the guard of Diego Lopez. The one thing I do like about Lopez is he's very active off of his back, which is going to make the control of Pat Sabatini a little bit more difficult to get going into this fight because he's not just going to sit on his back and not do anything. He will threaten with triangles, will threaten with arm bars, will threaten with sweeps, um, but he doesn't really try to work his way back up to his feet, and that's the thing I'm worried about the most in this spot. Um, I am going to pick Diego Lopez, though. I I still feel like as a plus 100 underdog, he's going to find a way to get it done. I like this guy. I like Sabatini, too. I I like the game of Pat Sabatini. I think he's a very, very solid wrestler, very good topside grappler, not so much off of his back because we don't see him work off of his back too much because he's such a dominant fighter on the top position. But um, Pat Sabatini, I think if he can control from the top and if he can avoid the submissions of Lopez, he probably wins the fight um, by either finding a submission of his own or ground and pound or working his way to um, just winning a decision. But at the end of the day, I am going to go with Diego Lopez to find a finish here. Um, I think he finds a TKO. Uh, I could see a submission late as well by hurting him um, to the body, hurting him to the head and finding a way to stun him and then submit him. Kind of like we saw in Damon Jackson, except Damon Jackson went for the um, ground and pound over the submission. But I'm going to take Diego Lopez, but it's not my most confident pick. So give me Diego Lopez to get the job done via a second round. I'll go second round ground and pound TKO. I could see a submission as well, um, but I'm going to side with Lopez as a slight dog here. All right, and now we move to the next fight up on the main card in the lightweight division, which is probably one of the best fights of the card. We're going to be one of your fights of the night between Matt the Steamroller Frivola fighting out of Strong Island, Team Saralongo, going up against Benoit St. Denis. 12 and 1 and 1 no contest for St. Denis. 11 3 and 1 for Matt the Steamroller Frivola. Man. What a fight this is going to be, and a fight between two guys who I consistently count out. I don't know if I've ever picked Matt Frivola to win a fight on my podcast before, and I don't think I've ever picked Benoit St. Denis to win a fight on my podcast either. I always pick against these guys, and it's kind of funny because now I have to make a pick of who I think is going to win between Frivola, who is a very solid fighter with a very solid win. I mean, a knockout win over... Um. Drew Dober, of all people, in his hometown in New York, caught him with a big shot right on the chin, a big right hook, 
dropped him, knocked him out. And, you know, Dober is a historically durable guy. He gets hurt, he gets rocked, but nobody can ever finish him. And Favola went in there and finished him off in a fight where he was already like a 2-1, to 3-1 to one underdog. And not only did he win, he won by knockout. So you bet on Favola, you bet on Favola by finish. You got a really, really juicy price tag there. Benoit Saint-Denis coming off that TKO stoppage of Tiago Moises. Before that, a rear naked choke submission over Ishmael Bonfim. Um, constantly coming through as an underdog. Constantly coming through as somebody who people are consistently counting out. I bet on Tiago Moises as a dog against Saint-Denis because of his experience level. Because of his overall competition level. And it was competitive. I mean, they went back and forth, but... You know, Saint-Denis just broke him. He hurt him with that brutal left kick to the body, the straight left hand. Um, the left kick to the body and the left head kick are the, the biggest weapons from Saint-Denis. I mean, he just will rip that kick over and over and over again. But he has good wrestling. He has good top control. He has good jiu-jitsu and good ground control to, you know, have to, if he has to shy away from the striking, he can use his wrestling in jiu-jitsu. He does get hit on the feet, and in exchanges, he does kind of leave his head on the center line. He can get hit. He can get hurt. We saw in the Elizio Zaleski dos Santos fight, who's coming off that win. Well, I guess it was a draw against Renat Fakhradinov, where he was a huge underdog. Um, probably should have got the job done there, but I think the draw was the right call. I had round one and round two for Renat. Round three, 10-8 for Fakhradinov, uh, for Elizio Zaleski dos Santos. But you know, looking at this fight, man, I mean, you know, he got dominated by Dos Santos and the ref should have stopped it and he didn't, which shows me that this is a guy who can get hurt, who can get clipped, who doesn't have the best striking defense and who kind of throws away his defense in favor of getting into brawls, getting into exchanges, getting into situations where it's kind of just a killer be killed. And usually that works. I don't think that works here against Frivola. Frivola is a guy who will get into those exchanges, who will get into those wars. And most of the time, he's going to come out on top. He'll find little openings in your defensive irresponsibility to still brawl with you, but keep it a little bit technical and just find those slight openings and crack you. I mean, against Gennaro Valdez, he got hurt. Then he came back and hurt him. He hurt him, he hurt him, he hurt him. And once, once Favola hurt Valdez, he hurt him over and over and over and over again. Against Dober, we all knew Dober was the more technical striker. We all knew Dober could probably knock him out if it stayed on the feet. We knew that the wrestling and the grappling would probably be more on the side of Favola. But what happened? Favola caught him with a big right hook on the chin, dropped him, jumped on him, and finished him off. Favola, again, against Atman Azaitar, a fight where I again picked against Matt Favola. He comes in. From, um, you know, Azaitar kind of just threw that fight away, in my opinion, by throwing big looping hooks overhands. And he got caught. Boom! Big shot right on the chin and folded by the steamroller. This is a guy who's born in the chaos. Both of these guys are born and fostered and raised in the chaos of mixed martial arts. And they're both going to exchange with each other. They're both going to throw down. I just think Frivola comes out on the top end of it. I think Frivola is going to be able to outdog Benoit St. Denis because we've seen with St. Denis, he can go back and forth with guys, but he does his best when he's in the driver's seat, which is normal. But with Frivola, he can come back from getting hurt, come back from getting dominated and find big shots, hurt the opponent and still stay in the fight and stay composed even when he's hurt and when it's not going his way. I don't think St. Denis does the best when the fight isn't going his way and when he gets backed up and when he gets hurt. He does better when he's in control. Yes, he can come back and get into wars and he likes getting into wars, but I think the God of War is outmatched here and he's going to get steamrolled 
by the steamroller. I think Frivola is going to find those openings. He's going to be able to keep up that pace longer than St. Denis. And as long as he can survive early, I think he'll have the better counters. I think he has the better power in the boxing while St. Denis probably has the better power in the kicking. And I think he has the grappling and wrestling to hang with a guy like St. Denis. I know he got out wrestled and out grappled by Armin Sarukian, but he was hanging with them. He was hitting switches. He was hitting reversals. He was going back and forth in the grappling with Sarukian. And I don't think St. Denis would be able to do that. So I'm going to pick Matt Frivola. I'm going to pick Frivola to get a win via finish. Um, I could see a decision, but I think someone's going out in this fight. I'm going to go Matt Frivola by first round knockout. I think he's just able to find those openings more than St. Denis is. And St. Denis is so used to being that, you know, kill or be killed, just walk through the opponents. And I think he's going to walk into a big counter from Frivola, get sat down and get finished. And at plus 180, plus 190 as an underdog, I think this is, again, an overcorrection on the betting market due to his last performance against Tiago Moises. And before that, I thought it was an overcorrection as well, but he proved me wrong. But I think here we got a big overcorrection. And I like the underdog in Favola. I just think he's been through more. I think he can hang in those wars. I think he's more technical. I think he has better boxing, better boxing power. And yes, he gets hurt, but I think he'll find a way to stick through it and find a big counter that drops St. Denis and finishes him off. So give me Matt, the steamroller Favola via first round TKO over Benoit St. Denis. Up next, we're in the women's strawweight division, and I'm going to keep this breakdown pretty quick, pretty quick and simple. You got Jessica Andrade, 24 and 12, versus Mackenzie Dern, 13 and 3. I don't think Jessica Andrade has the passion to stick in with MMA at the highest level anymore. I think she's kind of out of it. I feel like she's taking the, the fights in order to, you know, make some money. You know, get some money and, you know, more doing it for financial reasons than actual competitive passion. And I think that's a spot where Mackenzie Dern's going to run her over. Mackenzie Dern showed that in her last fight against Angela Hill, her striking has gotten a lot better. She hurt Angela Hill multiple times. And look what Angela Hill just did to Denise Gomes. I mean, yes, she mainly won that off of you know, grappling and wrestling, but she was out striking her as well. And Dern hurt her multiple times, out wrestled her, out struck her. And it was a dominant win for Mackenzie Dern. And that's a fighter who we always kind of crapped on her striking. And she showed that she's making improvements and that she can crack and hurt people on the feet. Now, Andrade is going to have the power advantage. She's going to have that walk forward, bob and weave, kind of Vanderlei Silva style of just ripping shots to the body, ripping shots to the head, throwing those wide punches, leaving her chin in the air. I think Mackenzie Dern's going to crack her on the chin as she comes in, wobble her, take her down, jump on her back, and rear naked choke her. I think it's a first-round submission for Mackenzie Dern, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the breakdown. I just think Dern runs her over, and I'm very confident. I'm probably going to place a bet on Mackenzie Dern. I think she should be a 3-1 to one favorite in this spot, and she's like minus 198, minus 200. Anything under like minus 220, I'm going to take a stab on Mackenzie Dern. I'll probably look at Mackenzie Dern inside the distance, but I'll, I might just take Moneyline and put it with something else. But uh, yeah, man, I like Mackenzie Dern a lot. I think Jessica Andrade just isn't in it anymore. I think she's in fighting for the wrong reasons. And I think it's an early rock and submission, a club and sub for Mackenzie Dern. Give me a round one rear naked choke submission for Mackenzie Dern over a former champion in Jessica Andrade. Right, now we go to the co-main event for the interim heavyweight championship between Sergey Pavlovich, who comes in at 18 and 1, taking on Tom Aspinall at 13 and 3. Uh, I'm gonna be real. 
I think if this was a full camp Tom Aspinall and Sergey Pavlovich, I would probably take Aspinall by submission. I feel like if he uses his wrestling, uses his grappling, and makes it competitive on the feet, he would be able to out-wrestle and probably submit Sergey Pavlovich. But he's stepping in on about two or three weeks' notice, and Pavlovich is a guy who has that one-hitter-quitter knockout power. And I know you're going to say, well, Pavlovich is coming in on short notice too. And that's true, but he was already going to be the backup fighter for Jones or Stipe, depending on who pulled out. And he was getting ready for the fight. He was ready to jump in if somebody got hurt, which means he was in camp. He was getting ready to prepare if in case he had to step in. And he's more prepared in this spot than Aspinall. Aspinall is the more well-rounded fighter. He has the better grappling, the better top control, the better submission game. He's faster on the feet, I think. He mixes up his punches and his kicks better. But at the same time, I just think this is a spot where on short notice, Pavlovich is going to knock out Aspinall. Like, Aspinall could hurt Pavlovich as well because Pavlovich doesn't have the best defense. He kind of walks forward and throws clubbing, like Russian-style palm-down hooks, uppercuts. He'll switch his stances and still even when he switches his stances he kind of squares up his stance so that there's equal power coming from the left and right side when he's throwing his boxing combinations and I just think the power is going to be too much for Aspinall here like yes Aspinall like I said he could win and the best way for him to win is to use that wrestling get to the top position you know get to full mount ground and pound and submit or ground and pound TKO Sergey Pavlovich who we saw have trouble against Alistair Overeem with the grappling with the ground and pound he got out grappled he got finished on the floor by Alistair Overeem. And we haven't really seen anybody exploit the wrestling defensive inefficiencies. But we did see Curtis Blades try to start wrestling with Pavlovich. And Pavlovich stuffed it. And he stuffed it easy, kept it on the feet, and pieced him up. In the fight with Curtis Blades and Tom Aspinall, he was getting touched up a little bit early. I know the fight ended very quick, but in the first few combinations... Curtis Blades landed a few good shots on Aspinall and, you know, set him back a little bit. So he doesn't have the best defense, I think, on the feet. He's just very fast and very technical with his offense. Um, I think Aspinall is a more well-rounded fighter and a better fighter than Darren Till, but I don't think he gets the job done here. I don't think he wins the belt. I think Pavlovich is going to come in, and I think he's going to catch Aspinall early and often in a fighter who wasn't getting ready for a fight, who wasn't ready on, you know, a week and a half, two weeks' notice to jump into this fight for the interim heavyweight title. I think Pavlovich is just going to kind of buzzsaw Aspinall here. I think he walks him down. I think he lands big punches. I think he hits him on the chin, drops him, and gets him out of there. I'm going to go Pavlovich by first-round knockout. I think the longer the fight goes, the more it favors Aspinall, but Aspinall's also coming in on short notice, which makes me think he's just going to go to war and try to get it done as quick as he can. Um, telegraph his takedown shots, which is going to make it easier for Pavlovich to either counter with an uppercut or just sprawl and disengage. And at the end of the day, I got to go with Pavlovich here. I think he's quicker and I think he has much more power on the feet. I think he cracks Aspinall on the chin and knocks him out. So give me Sergey Pavlovich to become the new interim UFC heavyweight champion via first round knockout. And then the main event of the evening, the fight that everybody's been waiting for, for the vacant UFC light heavyweight championship, you have the battle between Yuri Denisa Prohaska taking on Alex Poetan Pereira. Man, this is a very, very even fight. I'm going to be honest. I think it's very even. And I only say that because I feel like either fighter could knock out either fighter at any given point. I feel like this fight could almost end on the first exchange. If Yuri lands a big straight punch when Pereira's chin's in the air or lands a big flying knee or a big head kick, I think he can put Pereira out. 
If Pereira times Yuri Prohaska stepping in and cracks him on the chin with a big left hook, cracks him on the chin with a straight right, times a level change with a flying knee early, I think Pereira can knock him out. I think this is really a one-shot knockout fight where it could end within the first minute of the fight. It could really be over that fast. Now, do I think it's going to end that quick? It could. I don't think it ends in like the first minute or two of the first round, but I wouldn't be surprised if it did. Um, really, this fight is, ooh, it's a tough one because I think Prohaska is the more creative fighter. He has the more well-rounded game. We saw him get taken down by Glover, get controlled, but he was able to kind of scramble in positions, defend the submissions. He has better grappling defense than I think Pereira does. Pereira has been put in grappling exchanges, and in this fight, I would give the grappling advantage to Prohaska. I mean, not only because he submitted Glover to share in the fifth round of the title fight, but because he seems to be, you know, competent enough on the floor. And I think he has more experience in the grappling to the point where he would probably be able to out grapple a fighter in Pereira who hasn't really been grappling for too long, um, but does train under Glover Teixeira on the feet. I think the variety of striking and the creativity that all goes to Yuri, but the technical ability, the power and the, just the overall technical skill that goes to Alex Pereira all day. I think Pereira has the better jab. He has the better left hook. And the one thing that I think about when I break this fight down is I worry about the defensive irresponsibility of both fighters. I think Yuri moves his head a little bit more. Pereira doesn't really move his head. He kind of just stands straight up and walks forward and uses like a catch and parry style where he'll kind of parry the shots down, come back with a jab, jab to the body, come up top with the left hook, one, two, left hook, but he keeps his head on the center line and tries to parry away the punches of the opponent and kind of down block and parry. And I think that's a problem against Yuri. And like if Yuri catches him on the chin, with a head kick, with a big straight left or straight right, like he can knock out Alex Pereira early. And we've seen Pereira get knocked out by Adesanya. We saw him get hurt by Adesanya. Um, but I think his durability is going to be better at light heavyweight because of how much weight he cut at middleweight. But I still think Prohaska has the power to knock out a guy like Alex Pereira. I just see one thing consistently, and it makes me pick one side in this fight every single time. And it's the fact that Prohaska seems to get hurt with a left hook in almost every single one of his fights. He got hit with a big left hand by Dominic Reyes, who is a southpaw, so it is different because it's opposite stance, lead versus rear, or rear versus lead on the side of Reyes. Um, he's gotten hit with that left hand a lot. He got hurt, uh, got hit with a left hook and st uh, stumbled and rocked by Vulcan Uzdemir, got hit with a straight right, got hit with a big left hook from... Uh, Glover Teixeira and Hurd in that fight as well. He seems to be caught with left hooks a lot. I believe when he got knocked out by King Mola Wall as well, uh, he got hit with a left hook in that fight. In my, I think it was a left hook. I'm pretty sure he walked in and just got clobbered and face planted. Um, I think the flying knees, the switch stance combinations, and the head kicks are going to be the biggest weapons for Yuri, along with using his grappling and wrestling. Um, but coming in off that shoulder injury, we don't know what he's going to look like. And going up against a sniper like Pereira, who is going to be, you know, have durability concerns like we already touched on, but is also going to be at a weight class where he has more, you know, hydration. He's better hydrated. He's more filled out and he's not making a huge weight cut. I love Yuri and I love Pereira and it makes this fight really hard to pick for me because they're both two of my favorite fighters. But I'm going to go with Alex Pereira to win this fight by knockout. I think he just eventually catches Yuri Prohaska with that left hook as he closes the distance. 
And I think he only needs one. I think it's going to be a jab, right hand, jab, faint, moving around, calf kick, cross, and then boom, he just faints the jab and throws that left hook and knocks out Yuri Prohaska with one punch. I'm going to go with a second round left hook knockout for Alex Poetan Pereira to become the new UFC light heavyweight champion. Again, upping Adesanya and doing something that he couldn't do when he tried to move up and fight Jan Blahovich. So the pick is Alex Pereira, second round knockout with a counter left hook and makes Yuri Prohaska face plant. I don't want to see Yuri lose. I don't want to see Prohaska, or, uh, Pereira lose, but I am going to go with Poetan in this matchup. Um, I'm not going to give out too many bets this week, but if I was going to give you something, I would say... I like Tabitha Ricci as the underdog, even though I don't really like to play women's fights too much. I think that's a decent spot. Um, I would say Ricci as the dog. I think I think a parlay with Pavlovich by KO and Pereira by knockout is a good play. I like um, I like a little bit of action on Kevin Borjas because I do think it's a very even fight. And, you know, at those odds, I would kind of Give him a shot with his power and his technical ability with his boxing. Um, what else? What else? Let me see. Let's see. Um, hold on. We'll go back. I like... Let's see. Yeah, Borjas is about plus 180. I like Kyung Ho Kong, actually. I think he's a decent play at plus 114. Uh, I like Sadyakov and Mackenzie Dern. I think a Sadyakov-Dern parlay is good. I think Mackenzie Dern and Matt Frivola is a good parlay. I like Frivola at plus 190. Uh, Pavlovich by KO, Pereira by KO for a two-leg parlay is a good one. I like Mackenzie Dern paired up with Matt the Steamroller Frivola for a parlay. Um... Yeah, I think the uh, Sadyakov and Kyung Ho Kong is a good play. Kevin Borjas on a single bet. I wouldn't parlay him. Uh, yeah, those are the plays I like for this card. But that's going to be it for my UFC 295 breakdown. I hope you all enjoy the fights this weekend. And get this podcast out to anybody you wish. It's available on any platform for podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher. Get this podcast out because my YouTube is kind of out of commission for right now due to some computer problems. So get this out to anybody you wish and let's make some money at UFC 295.